there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using, you know, sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live, you know, in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are, and you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of Forward Thinking Investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build billion-dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right, how is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Investors. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Charlie O'Donnell, who's a partner at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Great. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to kind of learn more about you and kind of what you're interested in on the investing side. So I think my first question for you is probably my first question for everybody. You know, everyone has a different path into venture. What's yours? How do you kind of uh, become a venture capitalist? So my path is a little unique in that I actually started in venture. I really haven't done anything else. So I guess you could say it started with a high school internship. Uh, I was, um, my high school had this program where they basically kicked us out after two semesters of senior year because they knew we had applied to our colleges and weren't really paying attention and mostly just causing trouble. So at that point, if they can get us out of the building, that was sort of ideal. And I got set up with an internship four days a week, full time. And then the fifth day was kind of this internship seminar day at the General Motors Pension Fund. And when the internship was over in June, I asked my way into continuing it over the summer. And because, uh, and this was in New York, it was in Midtown, um, what most people know is the, where the Apple Cube is, but behind it is the General Motors building. It's still called the General Motors building actually. And because it was in New York and I went to college and Fordham up in the Bronx, I was able to continue my internship all throughout college. So I, I, I just kept coming back, right? Once I had been in there as a freshman, uh, there's very little available for you know freshmen in college that's that interesting on the internship front. So I just never, never left, and I bounced around a couple of different areas. Um, I spent some time in the trading room. I spent some time in real estate. The one area that I actually had never worked in was the venture capital and private equity group, but that's the group that happened to have an opening when I graduated. And so in February of 2001. I took a full-time position in their venture and capital, venture capital and private equity group. They'd been invested in venture from an institutional basis since like the late 
70s, I think. They invested in all of the big private equity firms that you've probably heard of, the Apollos and Blackstones and TPGs and all of that sort of stuff. Bunch of private debt. So stuff sort of up and down the cap table. But the thing that I found most interesting was venture. I mean, you know, when somebody comes in and says, um, hey, here's this new piece of technology that enables, you know, that saves lives because you, it enables a robot to do surgery, or here's this cool new phone that, you know, enables this to do X, Y, and Z. It's, you know, especially at the time to a 20 something was just super exciting. Uh, certainly more exciting than hey, we, we bought this old school brand and moved the, centralized the manufacturing and replaced the CFO and sold it for three times what we, we paid for it. I mean, I, it just didn't seem very exciting. Now in hindsight, most of those private equity guys now own major league sports franchises. So I guess, you know, there's sort of a delayed excitement to private equity, but you know, venture's still cool. So kind of, you kind of found this interest in, in venture. I'm curious for you, you know, I think the next question I have, I think a lot of people don't kind of know what it, what does it look like to be in venture? Obviously you, you invest, but that's obviously not like the only thing a VC spends time on, um, not hundred percent of the time. So I'm kind of curious for you, if someone's listening to this and they are just getting exposed to venture for the first time, can you kind of share what you spend your time on um, kind of during the day, roughly what, what, it, what a day in the life is of, of, a, of a VC specifically at your firm? Yeah, sure. So I actually did this. There's a blog post uh, entitled, what the heck does a VC do all day? Because I got this, I got asked this question from one of my investors. Um, it was between my first and second fund. And they asked this very legitimate question of, you've invested in 30 odd companies in the first fund. Now you're asking us to give you money to invest in a bunch of new companies. How do you have the time for these new companies when you've already put these old companies to work? Now, time management is just not really an issue for me, but that's not a really great answer. And so the, the institutional analyst in me was like, well, let me get the data to figure out actually what the, the answer is. And so I went back over the calendar to kind of you know, figure it out and figure out how I was spending my time. And the reality is you actually don't spend the majority of your time investing. Um, you, you spend much more of your time uh, with your existing portfolio. Um, you spend a, you know, in board meetings or you know, any number of different asides, right? So one of my portfolio companies just put a time on the calendar for walking through the user experience of a product they just launched and just spending some time on that. Now, I don't do that with every company. I'm not a user experience expert, but we just happened to started riffing on this. And, and, you know, for each one of the companies that I'm active on, it could be something different. It could be hiring for another company that I'm trying to help them out. It could be helping them broker sort of, um, you know, a business development deal or, or uh, helping them fundraise and get to the next round. Um, different firms have different approaches to this, right? And it really matters on stage. So if you're at a later stage firm, you don't do that many deals a year, right? If you're a series A partner, you do one, maybe two deals per year. And so the amount of time you actually spend writing the check is very small. 
right? Whereas I will do eight, nine, maybe 10 deals in a year. Uh, an angel investor, you know, who's got a, some kind of a syndicate. I feel like every day I get an email from Jason Calcanis that he's syndicate is investing in some new deal. At this point, he should just have an app with notifications. But, you know, um, so different people have different approaches. And that was one of the things I really noticed from my time at Union Square Ventures compared to my time at First Round Capital. At first round, um, yeah, I was doing four or five deals a year. At USV, as a firm, we were really doing, you know, sort of two, two a year. And so the, the pace seemed enormously different, but you make up for that in other ways, right? You probably do a lot more category research, reference calls, all of that sort of stuff in later stages, because you're putting bigger dollars to work. There's sort of more at stake in any individual uh, deal. Um, I spend a lot of time doing stuff related to groups and events and community, which is probably a, a much bigger chunk than I think a lot of other people do. And I spend very little time on firm overhead because I'm a solo general partner. So we don't, we don't have five hour partner meetings on Monday. You know, I, I'm sure I put in five hours in my own head on Mondays, but it's not a solid, you know, kind of block of time. But one of the things that I've tried to do at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures is to create the most accessible venture capital fund in New York. And that means that like you can interact with me in some way as a fund. So we just put up this event called Not A Pitch, which is super early feedback, directionally feed, uh, directional feedback for ideas that I don't even care if you came up with that day, frankly just to get a sense of like, am I crazy? Is this, you know, is this fundable? What questions is a VC gonna ask? And we're doing it the day after Veterans Day. And so we're opening it up priority to vets and uh, those who have served. And, um, you know, just kind of put myself out there, kind of lower the bars to interaction with the startup community. And we probably do an event a week along those lines. You mentioned there um, from two previous firms that you worked at, one was more active writing checks, one was uh, less active in, in regards to velocity. Um, mm -hmm. When you started uh, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, how did you, like, did you want to, how do you know you wanted to um, work in the stage you're in? So I guess two, two questions. One, what stage is Brooklyn Bridge Ventures in? And, you know, what, how, like, how many checks do you write? You know, what stage of company? And like, how did you decide on that when you obviously have, have some varied experience where you probably could have done, you know, gone different ways if you wanted to? Yeah, so I just put a hard number on it. I basically say, I'm willing to, to make an investment in any company that has yet to raise 750K in a previous round. So there's no stage name for that. That's sort of a unique way of coming about that. But what I guess you typically compare that to is either angel, friends and family, pre-seed or institutional seed. Um, the thing is about all of the different types of rounds that I just mentioned, they're not successive. And so not every company raises all of those different types of rounds and they have no bearing on stage, right? So you could conceivably bootstrap your way to a million dollars in revs and then decide to raise a, a million dollars from 10 individual angel investors who each write 100K checks each. Now, 
you could also decide to go get a $3 million round for your two people in a PowerPoint and, you know, have NEA be the lead, right? But like those two companies, one is in an earlier stage than the other, but you wouldn't know that from the fact that one's an angel round and one's an institutional seed. So I, I find that all confusing. And I would just, just as soon say, here's a hard number, come talk to me if you've yet to raise 750K. And I, I think the reason why I'm most interested in that is just because I like being there from the beginning. Um, I like putting into play some of the, the overhead that just adult, real serious companies have. You know, like, let's have a board meeting. I don't care that I'm not actually a board member. Let's just sit down once every, you know, six weeks or whatever and say, well, what did we try and do over the last six weeks? What are we doing over this six weeks? Did last six weeks, did it work? Did it not work? Do we have a reason to believe it's going to work even though it didn't work last time? Um, what hires do we need to make? Like, let's let's get on the same page and have a discussion, right? Like you, you say you need a marketing hire, but uh, the stats on engagement are not great. Maybe we should hire for product first. Let's be serious about having that kind of... Uh, discussion. And I would just assume rather have that from day one, rather than, you know, coming in on like a seed plus where the company's already been around for two and a half years. Definitely. Um, that's awesome. I, I, I think and I myself, I'm not an investor, maybe one day I will be, but I think the early stages of a company, um, early, early stages are the most exciting um, for sure. Um, so Kind of, I want to break down two elements of, of how investors look at opportunities. There's like founders and like team, and then there's markets. Um, and then there's obviously many other areas. But on this podcast, I, I largely focus on like team and market. So let's let's start with team. When you, you know, have someone across the table from you or across the Zoom from you um, and they're pitching you, what do you ideally want that team to look like, possess? Um, I guess what's a good team for you when you're looking um, at a potential investment? So um, it's usually uh, two straight white guys who've both gone to Harvard and they both code and only that, no, no, it's just literally, uh, I mean, some firms might say that, but that's, uh, uh, you know, by far not the description of the average Brooklyn Bridge Ventures uh, uh, founder. In fact, you know, over 50% of the teams that I've backed have uh, diversity on the, on the founding team across a number of different categories. I've largely gotten away from the idea that there's some universally great team um, because I'll, I'll tell you that there are many instances in which I could take two founders of successful companies of mine and swap them. And I don't think the companies would be successful. So it, it really is sort of this founder product or founder market fit is, is really important is that the skills of the team really match the challenges of the market and the product, I think is really what's important to me. Um, insight is also a big thing um, I'm a believer that the, you know, the last however many years of your life led you to this thing. And so much of that story and, and how it iterates is going to be impactful on your success 
than, um, you know, especially in the early days, right? Why, why are you intimately familiar with this particular problem? You know, why, you know, somebody just asked me about lean startup and, and one of my biggest issues with lean startup is that it sometimes feels like somebody has decided to start a company and then it's just randomly poking around to find an idea that works. I would so much rather back someone who comes and tells me, I used to be the client and I know the market has not solved this particular problem and I know why, and here's how we're going to solve it. Do you wanna come on board or not for that? That's so much more of a compelling pitch to me. And there are some other investors who are like, hey, we're messing around with this tech and it's cool. We're not sure how it wants to use it, but we're just like a really smart team from MIT and we're just kind of poking around the market. We'll figure something out. And, and if we don't, Google will buy us for the people. Like that's, that's less of the kind of idea of what I tend to back. The, um, I don't know if you call it a framework, but for lack of a better word, the framework that I use for what you just said is just missionary versus mercenary. mercenary. Um, right. when I like, when, yeah, like how, um, if there's a mercenary versus missionary scale, where are they on that scale for sure? Um, and then the, so something, my favorite topic in investing and just in general is just like markets, how they change, how, like the invisible markets, things like this. So I, I'm going to ask a couple of questions on, on the market side, but to just kind of kick it off. What, um, what, what markets interest you? Um, I, let's just start there. What's, what markets are interesting to you? Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll ask, I'll ask a, a kind of a few questions after that. Um, I'm a generalist. I am always continually surprised by what things wind up coming down the pipe. So the first seven, we'll call it eight deals in Brooklyn Bridge Ventures Fund 3, which is the fund that I'm both investing out of now and also finishing up the fundraise for, um, are three products in the kids space. Now everyone keeps needling me because I just got married a year or so ago and, and whether or not that's like unconsciously on my mind or not, I have, I have no idea, but it, um, it is, uh, it's an area that I've invested in before. Um, and they're, they're, they're different models. One is apparel, one is, I guess for lack of a better word, gaming slash education. Um, and, and the, the other is in care uh, to some extent. And there's an infosec deal, a power generation deal, um, a you know, SaaS for retail, um, and uh, personal healthcare. So it's, it's kind of all over the board frankly. Um, and it's just really a function of really what entrepreneurs are, are most interested in. I will say that if I could point to any trend that I'm most interested in, I think some of the best founders are looking for ways to make positive impact on the world. I, I, I think in general, uh, the people that I resonate the most with are people that um, aren't just trying to squeeze every dollar out of everybody else and, and have that approach. And I think, look, in general, I think in many ways, many aspects of our country and society have sort of moved to the left 
Um, you know, it's funny, we're, we're sort of re-watching the West Wing at home and there's this conversations that happened sort of 20 years ago about drug legalization or, you know, gay marriage or all of this sort of stuff. And it's like, wow, yeah, like 20 years ago, like that, that was sort of a question rather than sort of a foregone conclusion. And so, you know, I think what I see in a lot of founders is this idea is they could do both. So I'm not a social impact fund, but in many ways, I think a lot of the, the, the companies that I'm backing have some kind of a mission that talent can feel good about participating in. So it kind of seems to me that you, I don't have a word for it, but you kind of just like take, like take what comes at you and then evaluate opportunities as they come. Is do you, um, which I think is great as, as, as a more of a founder archetype, you know, the founders are interested in all different random things and like, it's just do those things have a big market. Could they be venture scale, et cetera. But I have to guess it, it might be hard to, if, if you're kind of generalist, um, do you have, ever have a hard time like dealing with inbound from all different types of companies? Um, or how do you kind of think about getting deal flow from all industries um, and things like that? It, uh, yeah, do you, how do you organize all of that? Yeah, I, I think that it helps to have absolutely no attention span whatsoever. And so in general, I can, Switch. I switch topics sometimes without even thinking about it, and so um, that that mental model switching is is not hard for me, especially because I I think I'm actually pretty good at breaking down things into these market models and sort of understanding like, oh, you know, here here's a middleman. Like, why is that middleman there? Oh, because there's a a quality filter problem and, and, you know, well, why is that the case? And, you know, um, what do people sort of care about and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Right. And so I don't necessarily need to be, for example, an expert on, uh, fitness to understand that if I were to create an AI coach, that if the user knows that there's an AI coach in there and that it's not a human, they're just inevitably willing to pay less because people just pay more when there's a person on the other end doing the service. It's just how people operate, it's how they associate. And so, you know, that, that works across a number of uh, different areas. And I'm constantly trying to pull one thing from a different area. And, and I, I'm a big subscriber of, um, the cross-pollination idea of innovation that Steven Johnson puts forth in where good ideas come from. It's the you know constant borrowing. And I think I'm always kind of borrowing. It's kind of like, if you live in New York, you can't help that uh, because you constantly run into people who work in all sorts of different industries. And if you wanna make halfway decent conversation, you have to be able to start from somewhere. And so I'm, I'm pretty decent at figuring something out and, and just having one thing to insert into a conversation with somebody who's in a very different space. That has to be like, it has to be one of those valuable skills you can have just as a, as a, like a social creature, um, being able to understand what someone else does or be able to talk their lingo, things like that. Um, so that, that's awesome. Um, so another kind of, uh, one of the, one, another, and one of the last kind of segments of the podcast is, um, kind of focused on, 
future of adventure, um, meaning like, you know, I see Angelus doing their thing. You know, I see uh, the SEC slowly, but, um, but uh, they are changing the credit investor laws every, every so slightly. Curious for you, do you have any predictions or thoughts on like where venture is going? And I'll leave it very open-ended, but lots of activities happening right now. What's your predictions for the next five, 10 years for the, for the industry? Yeah, so um, I think there's not everyone participates in the same venture market. So if I were a Silicon Valley based fund, um, I think I'd probably be more worried than ever because it is so easy for super connected um individuals to sort of spin up decent size rounds and followings and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, the, the, the pace of capital formation there is, is it, it almost feels like uh, chip design where you're, you're down to like six nanometers between different paths and maybe somebody else gets to five, but at some point you run into just the you know, molecules and, and, and not wanting to sort of, uh, you know, the limitations of the laws of physics of, of how fast good companies, at least on paper, get their rounds raised. Um, and it's really, really tough to compete in that ecosystem. The rest of the world is just not like that, frankly. And it's not like that sort of on, on many levels. One is that sort of pedigree looks different in other places, right? The unique thing about the Valley is that 99% of the startups who come in, you already know the person through one degree of separation, right? And so this is the person who worked on this database at Amazon. You already know the people they worked with, you know what they did. And so startups have pedigree on paper when they walk in the door out there or they come out of Y Combinator or all of this sort of stuff. In New York, it's just not like that at all. Frankly, the, the resumes are pretty random. You're getting more and more people with startup backgrounds, a former VP of marketing from wherever, but but not not in the same realm. And and our world is very applied, right? So somebody comes up with some banking security software, and they've never been to a tech meetup. They don't follow Paul Graham's newsletter or what have you. They've never heard of Substack. Like they're coming in and you literally have no venture capitalists in common with this person, but they are the top person in their field on this particular startup. That's a unique animal. And, and I don't really think that people doing it in their part-time have an advantage in getting to that person. Um, I think you know it's more likely the case that somebody who's doing it full time, doing this kind of thing, you know, being on a podcast, getting yourself out there on a full time basis, has an advantage, um, especially if you're willing to lead rounds. Um, and and there's a trust factor too, right? It's it's more of the case that um, the VCs are better connected than the angels. Um, which is sort of the inverse, I think, in, uh, in the Valley. It's hard to be as connected with somebody who isn't working full-time at a venture fund. They're just out and about, they're doing their thing, right? So 
So New York's pretty different along those lines. So in terms of what the future is, um, I think it depends on what part of the market. My part of the market, I, I, I do think one of the big issues, particularly in New York, is um, there's a, a real issue with capital at the earliest of stages. Because if you think about who funds the funds, right? Who are the LPs behind some of um, these newer funds and where their money comes from? There's a lot of nervousness. Uh, historically, you look at your LP base for a small fund in New York, you always have some real estate people in here. I've gotten passed on by some real estate people who, um, who just told me, they said, you know, I don't know how much money we're gonna make next year. I don't know if we're gonna make any money next year. I don't know what percentage of my rental base on the commercial and the residential side is gonna be open next year. So I don't feel comfortable going into an illiquid asset class. Uh, I've had some success of people who um, have had some exits and are looking to sort of redeploy the money and they're not sort of full-time with this, but the bigger funds though, they become more institutional um, and, you know, if you're a sub $50 million fund, uh, in New York, uh, it's, I think it's hard, um, especially as you get a couple of funds in your existing LPs may or may not be able to write a second or third check. And so, um, I think the early stage in New York has, I'll put it in a positive way. It's going to have a lot of opportunity for investors. Well, I actually have one question on that front, just off the cuff. Um, so like, I, I am very interested in like the earliest stage of investing. Um, I, I just think it's like an interesting place to be. So I'm just curious for you, like if you think there's a lot of opportunity, if you could pull like, a, you know, how to magic hat, just pulled out solutions that you think could, you know, could help the scene in New York, like what would they be? Like, are, are they accelerators, just more angels? Do you, do you have thoughts on just like, what could be the, the uh, kind of close to an answer? Yeah. I think you have to make it easier to get the money for a fund. Uh, a little bit of a larger fund over a longer period of time. And so what I mean by that is like, yeah, sure. It's technically easy to start a rolling fund, but that doesn't give someone the access to the capital. Like you still need to send that rolling fund to someone who can put 100 grand, 250 grand, 500 grand into it. And if you don't know those people, the, the creation of a rolling fund doesn't help you along those lines. And, and you know, the little secret about AngelList is, is it's not this democratized thing. They've just lessened the friction for people who know other wealthy people to get their capital. It, they didn't introduce people who didn't have connections to people who have money. Um, and I think that is really the biggest barrier. Um, and I would love to see ways in which maybe the city could be, you know, more of a convener. And I think one of the biggest struggles is that um, historically city governments and other types of institutions like that, they don't want to be recommenders but they need to draw the line between the difference of being a recommender and a convener, right? Put, let's throw a conference about reinvigorating this, this, the economy and, and with a ton of interesting roundtables, and let's make 
half of the people in the room, the wealthiest people in New York, and half of the people in the room, the innovators, the founders, all of those sort of stuff. We're not recommending that any of the wealthy people invest in any of those people, but if it happens, that's great. That's not really the way local government sort of thinks. They're always like, well, what's the agenda? What are we expecting out of these people? And it's like, look, you don't understand. These wealthy people want to trade their wealth for interestingness. And this is the most interesting hundred innovative people we could find in New York. We don't need an agenda. Let's just put them in the in the same, you know, breakout room on Zoom for, for now. And then, you know, maybe next year in person. Definitely appreciate you sharing that. And then I just one last question. Um, I think that venture capital is this world that is kind of misunderstood or just, you know, it's, it's hard to understand from any level, even if you're a founder. So my question for you is what is one thing about venture capital that you just wish more people knew about? Um, it could be any element and it could be for founders or just the general public, but what is one area you want to demystify for people? That's a really good question. Um, I would say it's the relationship between uh, estimates, possibilities, and promises as it comes to forecasts, right? And so what I mean by that is when somebody comes in and I say, how big of a business could this get? Let me see your financial model. There are a lot of founders that out of good intentions, don't wanna put anything down on paper they see as unrealistic or improbable, right? They don't wanna, in their mind, lie. But it's not lying to say, if we successfully hired four salespeople a year for the next seven years, and they each do at least as good as I'm doing in my part-time, and I'm not even a professional salesperson, that this thing gets to be a $100 million business in seven years. I mean, do you know that for a fact? No, there's a million fucking things that can happen between now and then to throw this thing off the rails. Um, but it's a possibility. And VCs need to understand that possibility because what founders don't realize is I'm investing in 30 possibilities knowing that only three of them are three of them are going to work out but it doesn't work out for me if it's definitely not a possibility right you you do your best thinking and you're like listen after 30 million dollars of revenue this is squeezing blood from a stone like it just doesn't get that big after a while we run out of market size or what have you and it's like okay that's great like and if you can get your money from your cousin or your friends or crowd wherever for this business that's awesome but it's not a good fit for me I think a lot of founders are unable to raise because they're just not willing to share that possibility, especially among female founders, founders of color, people for whom the reality is there is more scrutiny uh, on, on them, uh, both real and perceived. And I think it, it holds them back from fundraising. It holds them back from, from, from raising bigger rounds uh, because they're not pushing the envelope on what's possible. They're like, yeah, you know, listen, if I, if I just had 500K, I could get break even next year. And look, that's better than going out of business, but it's not what's going to make a venture capital really, uh, venture capital fund really excited.
Yeah, that's that's honestly something I maybe subconsciously thought about, but didn't think about like that. Like, it's okay to think big. That's the whole point of this whole industry. Um, cool. So last, last question, very easy. If someone is hearing this conversation, they like you, they want to get in touch. They've, you know, a giant opportunity they want to share, or they just want to like ask you a question. How, how can they find you? Are, is there an email? Do you have a website? How can some, or Twitter, how can someone get in touch? So you cut out for a moment, but I think you asked how someone finds me and I'll, uh, the best way to find me, I think is, um, or the best way to reach out, frankly, is, is either by email, which is charlie at brooklynbridge.vc, or I have this little calendar request tool on my site that is nice on my end because it neatly organizes all of the requests into like one stream. And so, uh, you know, I don't guarantee a meeting, but if I do want to take a meeting, it's just really easy to, to say yes and, and, and pick from that. Um, so, yeah, just reach out. I don't care about warm intros. We don't have to know anybody in common. Uh, Founder-wise, I do want to hear from people in New York, um, or at least who intend to build the business here, and not just because they got an investment here, that literally actually intend on being in New York. And it's it's fine if you're temporarily in Kansas, but you're totally coming back when you know you can meet in person. Like that's that's fine. That's just a a, a very pragmatic approach, but. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the thing. And I would say, um, don't ever ask for just five minutes or just 10 minutes or whatever. Like if you're working on something, you should feel like I'd be crazy not to spend the time with you. So, you know, don't, you're not asking for a lump of coal. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I really appreciate it. No problem. All right. Thank you all for listening to that podcast of Forward Thinking Investors live from the radio station in Forward Thinking City. What is Forward Thinking City? Forward Thinking City is the number one virtual community for people to break into tech and startups. We have a combination of AMAs with the the best founders and investors out there. Um, We have educational sessions on how to fundraise for your startup and how to learn to build products with no code and of course we have tons of networking events for example open coffee hours and pitch club um, so you can get practice meeting other people and pitching your product in front of dozens if not hundreds of other residents for thinking city is $20 a month and in exchange you get access to all of these founders all of these potential future employees these future investors as well as the education that you need to take your startup to the next level if you are trying to level up as a founder or an investor or startup enthusiasts go to forwardthinking.city and we'll see you over there know some of events are free so if you're just interested if this piques your interest go to forwardthinking.city and rsvp to some events and if you feel like it sign up as a resident and i'll see you on the other side